Today's episode, Silver Line Lies, was recorded live during the 2023 NASA Investor Education Conference. We discussed how a small Utah coin shop owner used his storefront to execute the largest Ponzi scheme in Utah history. He did not use an elaborate marketing campaign to advertise his risk-free opportunity, but relied on the word of mouth to spread his tarnished scheme. The fraud went on for multiple decades as he stole over $200 million from about 500 investors. Hello, and welcome to Real Life Regulators, live from the 2023 NASA Investor Education Training in sunny Fort Lauderdale, Florida. This podcast series is brought to you by the North American Securities Administrators Association, also known as NASA. This podcast was created to educate investors using real-life examples of securities fraud cases. During each episode, we review different cases and discuss what went wrong, how you can identify the red flags of securities fraud, and what you can do in the future to protect yourself and your loved ones from a similar situation. My name is Jeremy Lusheen, and I'm the producer, director, and stage manager for today. Uh, I work at the Washington State Department of Financial Institutions, and before we get started, uh, we need to go over some housekeeping rules to make sure this is the best podcast ever. Number one, it's quiet on the set. Number two, a fixed chair is must to prevent rocking back and forth. Number three, if you mess it up, don't sweat it, we edit. Uh, number four is turn off any email notifications on your computer and make sure all cell phones are silent. Uh, Number five, if you have any Southern accents, be sure to maximize those during today's recordings. Uh, lastly, we, if we have time, we'll take questions at the end. And now, action. Well, I'm one of your hosts, Nick Bonnaroo, uh, Education and Public Affairs Manager for the Alabama Securities Commission. And my co-host today is Tina Kotsilas, Director of Investor Education and Consumer Outreach with the Pennsylvania Department of Banking and Securities. Also joining us is Liz Blaylock, Senior Enforcement Manager, and Francois Grayson, Senior Communication and Outreach Manager, who both work at the Utah Department of Commerce Division of Securities. Before we get into the case, let's start off and tell us a bit about who you are and what you do. Liz, we will start with you. Great. Thank you for having me. I'm Liz Blaylock. I am the current Securities Enforcement Manager for the Utah Division of Securities. My section oversees and investigates individuals who sell unregistered securities and do not hold securities licenses. Often this area has a high fraud um, threshold. Francois? Oh, sure. I'm Francois Grayson. I've been with the division for about seven years, and I've been a Jill of all trades since I've been at the division. I started off as a compliance examiner, um, and then I moved over into the enforcement section as their legal analyst. My background is in finance and law, and now I'm the senior um, outreach and communication manager for the section. And so pretty much with my role, not only do we run our investor education outreach program, but we also run our social media program and any sort of written communication for the, um, the division, as well as press releases and things along those lines. I'm happy to be here. Thank you, Liz and Francois. Let's get into the case. So the subject of this case is Galen Rusk or Rust Rare Coin Inc. Liz, can you briefly describe this case? Oh, boy. That's a task. <laughs> Loaded question. Yes. Well, in short, this case is the largest 
Ponzi scheme in Utah history. Um, it's, it spans a period of multiple decades and encompasses at least 500 victims and over $200 million. Can you tell us a little bit about Galen Russ's background? Sure. Uh, this, this story starts very similar to many things and businesses in all of our communities. Rustware Coin was a small business operated here in the Salt Lake area. It's a coin shop where you would go to get a coin appraised or buy a specialty minted coin. It opened in 1966 and was a third generation family owned business. Galen Rust was the second generation owner and he took over in the mid to late 1980s. And his son, Josh Rust, started working for the business around 2004 and planned to take it over when his father ultimately retired. So on uh, Mr. Rust, can you tell us a little bit about his professional background before he started the rare coin business? That's just it. That is the background. Wow. He, uh, he worked uh, for his father in the coin shop as a teenager, and eventually uh, took it over in the 80s. He did not go to school uh, beyond his high school education. He did not own any special uh, skills. He did not have any licenses. Um, just a general small business owner. Just what he learned day to day working at the shop. We mentioned briefly um, just now about one of his sons, but can you tell us a little bit more about his family life? Was he married? How many kids, et cetera? Sure. Uh, Mr. Rust is uh, about 60 years old, the time I interacted with him, the time frame in this case. He had uh, five children and had been married to the his wife, uh, Denise Rust, for about 30 years. Um, three of their sons and two of their daughters all worked in various capacities for their family businesses. One son in particular, Joshua Rust, he worked at the coin shop with his father. The other sons ran different other family businesses, things like a music studio, a video editing commercial uh, studio, um, a family-owned uh, homestead in Alaska. Wow. And the other was an event business, uh, the kind of company you would hire to, to put on a party or uh, host a wedding. Well, sounds like they were really like a jack of all trades. What kind of, uh, were they active in church? Very much. Uh, it's kind of a pillar here in Utah, but the Church of Latter-day Saints is a very common uh, and popular religious affinity here in Utah. Uh, the Russ were devout members of that. Um, all of their children, the, the family, uh, had longtime members of, of the church and the community. So it sounds like he was really an established businessman and active in the community. So how did you or your office actually learn about the case then? Well, that's just it. On its face is what you've heard so far is very unassuming. This is a, a family with 
strong community ties, well-known, well-respected with lots of small businesses. Mm-hmm. So, and, so and, you know, and just to piggyback off of what Liz said, so the division, we received two, I think, Liz, correct me if I'm wrong, two whistleblower complaints. And the state of Utah, we were one of the first states to actually enact a whistleblower program. Of course, the SEC has a whistleblower program as well, but I believe it was in 2011. And since then, we've paid out, I think, three three awards, um, including two whistleblower complaints in this in this case. But that's how it initially came to the division. That's right. Someone who had a family member invest in this opportunity with Galen Rust found it to be very unusual, unconventional, didn't make sense. Although that person did not invest, they found it so unusual that they felt compelled to report that to the state regulator, which is our office. And it was assigned out to me as the case agent as just a routine matter to follow up on, see if it's even a security. Well, we're talking about Russ Redcoin for a reason today. And it's obviously he didn't do everything that he was supposed to. And some things were dropped. Can you kind of tell us like what he was doing that was wrong about this business? Yes. Well, the front of the business was a legitimate coin shop. The back of the business was operating an investment program. That's what they called it, an investment program or the silver program. What Mr. Rust was offering to friends, family, or other people who came to him by personal referral was an opportunity to invest in bulk silver trading, um, as in precious metals, a commodity. What he told investors was that he, uh, with the shop, get special wholesale deals in silver, that they use these wholesale deals to buy silver. They also trade silver generally in the commodities market. And Galen Rust had been doing this for decades. He was very skilled and sophisticated at trading. He also claimed he had a special proprietary algorithm that would allow him to watch the market, to know exactly when to trade, when to buy, when to sell. Also, he told investors that at least a portion, half of the silver itself was physically held at Brinks Security Global, the the vault services where we may all be familiar with. So there was trade, and of course there's risk with any trades, But the physical silver was held in a secured depository. And so at any given time, only a portion would be subject to trades and the rest would remain secure. And at the end of each trading day, each trade would result in physical silver that would be stored in Brink's vault. Was there a minimum investment to participate? Yes. There was a $10,000 minimum. Even though there was this minimum threshold, Rust often told investors that that is really low. And even if you did come to him with $10,000, he might allow you to invest in the program, but you'd really need to partner up or join 
with another investor with more sizable funds uh, to create a pool. And there how were did, many pools. How did he how did he recruit his customers? Very uniquely, this was not advertised. It's not on the internet. It's not on the radio. It's not in a brochure or printed material. It's only by word of mouth. You can only invest in the program if you know someone who's invested in the program. It required a personal referral in order to meet with Mr. Rust about this opportunity. Did he have employees or was it he the one that went and solicited? He had many employees um, for the many businesses he owned. But as far as the silver program, there were just a very limited few. He was the one who would meet with investors and do all the trading. He had a receptionist who would schedule meetings or fill out routine paperwork. His wife, Denise Rust, was in charge of managing all the accounts. And his son, Josh Rust, was responsible for running the front of the business, the actual coin shop, and the day-to-day operations of a real business of buying and selling coins. They had other folks, too, general general sales staff for the coin shop, and even an accountant. But the accountant did not perform any work related to the investment program. So we know that they've got a bunch of other different businesses. They've got an accountant. They've got staff. But was the businesses themselves, would you consider them to be successful? On the face value, they certainly looked so. They had large buildings, state-of-the-art music studios, uh, even a nonprofit, a charity that gave musical instruments to elementary school students. On its face, each of these enterprises the Rust family was involved in looked very profitable. But behind the scenes in the bank records that tell the true story of what's going on, all of these businesses were failing. None of them was profitable. Well, what did he do to get out of that financial hole? Well, that was in part why this fraud was created. Mr. Rust needed money. The money from investors did not go to buying silver. It did not go to a Brinks account. It did not buy silver stored in a vault. It did none of those things. Investor funds propped up multiple family businesses, charities, and even the personal lifestyles of the Rust family themselves. So without investor money, none of these other businesses would have existed at all. What was his pitch to investors? Well, it's a win-win, no lose, risk-free. Wow. Some investors reported this, this trading description of how he would trade the silver in order to make profits was somewhat so complex that not all the investors fully understood it. And when they would ask more questions about it, his response would be, maybe this isn't the investment for you. So he described the trading scheme as I did before about he's going to trade it in a using his special algorithm. And at the end of the day, physical silver ounces will be sent and calculated and stored in a Brinks vault. 
when we asked, well, how, how are you doing? You know, how's, how's the trading returns looking? The answer is uh, that he never had a losing year. That wow. his worst year was a 12% return and his best year was over 40%. But on average, 20 to 25% return per year. So that's a huge red flag. And we all know if something sounds too good to be true, it probably is. But what can an investor do to determine like a precious metal such as like the silver bars are indeed legitimate? You already said that, you know, they were told that they were stored in a vault. Could have just asking, let me look at the silver. Would that have been enough, you think? Or would he have been able to hide that as well? That's a great question. Some investors did ask to see the the silver. They asked to go look in the vault. They wanted to see it and hold it themselves to verify it was real. Rust had a, a litany of excuses as to why they could not. The vault was too secure. Uh, the account was only in his name and it was secret because someone might try to infiltrate and get that information and put everyone's investment at risk. So he had it a crafty explanation for all of the reasons of why someone couldn't go physically verify it. But to satisfy those concerns, he would also write up a letter confirming your investment existed, the amount of your investment. And at some points, he would also provide investors with monthly or annual statements reporting to show how much silver they they had, what's its value, and what kind of trades were done during that year. Um, about how many victims were involved, would you guess? Well, we're still kind of sorting that out. Here we are years later figuring that out. Approximately 583 investors is our count. However, each of those encompasses usually a, a husband and wife. So they could be higher towards a thousand if we count them as individual investors, because each of them did invest their own money as well as their marital joint assets. So we're really hoping to use this episode as really a broad education piece that many people out here can use at their states to kind of educate the public. And there's a lot of terms that are thrown about a lot. And we just would like to you to clarify some of these so in this particular case, um, there's definitely fraud going on, but what type of fraud would you say this would be classified? Would it be affinity fraud or would it be a Ponzi scheme? Could you help explain? Yes, it is both of those things. An affinity fraud is one in which the perpetrator of the scheme shares an affinity with the individuals who are victims in the scheme. And they rely on that shared affinity rather than looking to other sources. In this case, the shared affinity is very much the shared religious affinity. A majority of the investors are also devout uh, Latter-day Saint church members. And they very much relied on the multi-generational family business establishment and Russ's uh, prominence in the community as, as a devout church member himself and local business owner. Well, um, how did the Mormon community learn about this investment opportunity? Did they learn by through networking at church? Yes. Okay. 
you know, the investors in this case come from all walks of life. Uh, majority are church members, but there are doctors, lawyers, even investment advisors who fell victim to this scam. They would hear about it from their neighbor, their friend, a church colleague, a work colleague. Um, because this investment was by invitation only, many of the investors had to hear about it from someone else. There was no other way for them to be introduced to it other than by a family member or a friend or a work colleague or someone who they would share investment information with. And Mr. Rust, he was a long-term businessman in the same area, like he never really moved anywhere. When did this scheme actually start? How long has this been going on? Our records for our first investor go back to 1996. Wow, that's impressive to keep something going for that long without well, really was, meaning. Yes, and even more remarkable that that investor saved their checks, their certified mail receipts, their handwritten receipts of my investment to Mr. Rust, uh, their notes about the investment. They saved all of their documents in a file. And that evidence and information was obviously very helpful in us in determining how far back this went because our bank records and financial records did not go far back. <laughs> They're limited in how far back we can look. So when did the victims actually start asking questions and why? Well, unfortunately, they started asking questions and coming forward after November 15th, 2018. This was the day that the United States District Court issued a restraining order, freezing the assets of Rust and all of his businesses, and filing an injunction in connection with our agency, the CFTC, and the United States Securities and Exchange Commission, and a corresponding criminal case involving the FBI. Uh, on this day, everything stopped. Um, a news story reported what had happened and investors started coming forward and telling their stories about why it was not a, a, a scam or a scheme, um, trying to assure us that the money is in the vault. You just need to look at the vault. And unfortunately, over time, all these investors realized that they had been duped. So what was he actually charged with? He was charged with... Uh, Mr. Rust, his wife, and his son, Josh Rust, were all three charged with wire fraud, conspiracy, money laundering conspiracy, securities fraud, and money laundering. In total, six counts. Okay. And, you know, on this uh, podcast series, we've delved in a quite a bit about securities fraud. But one of the terms that we hear a lot of that many of our listeners may not be very familiar with is wire fraud. Can you just briefly describe or define what wire fraud is for our audience? Sure. Well, wire fraud involves, it's a federal criminal offense. And the elements of it are that when electronic communications are used to commit fraud, that sounds very simple. But what that means is something like an email that contains false information or a wire as in a wire transfer of money to invest in something that doesn't exist. 
Okay, great job on that one. How about money laundering? Well, money laundering is both a state and federal offense. It involves a situation where someone is trying to conceal the money from a scheme or some other kind of fraudulent or illegal activity. So in this case, uh, we have a securities fraud, an unregistered, unlicensed, illegitimate investment offering. And you're using the money in a certain way to try to conceal what you're doing. So now that we have an understanding of what he was accused of, um, one of the things that we would like to know is when he was making these pitches, did he ever make good on any of the promises that he made to any of the earlier investors? Yes, that is a critical part of any Ponzi scheme. And this one is no exception. Ponzi schemes pay out. So earlier investors very much received returns. Some of them made more money on this investment than they had invested. And that is one of the reasons why so many investors continued investing, reinvesting, telling their friends and neighbors about it, is because when Galen Rust said this is a 20% return and you'd like to withdraw your 20%, he would pay out. We're talking large sums. One family in particular, they paid out $16 million. Wow. What do you think was his end game? Were there any good intentions? Well, the day Mr. Rust was served with all of the asset freeze information, he stated that he would do all of this again. And he claimed that the reason why he did all this was to help teen suicide. Now, that may sound very strange because it has nothing to do with the investment opportunity or any of his businesses or charities. But (laughs) he described that all of this was to help further a new business idea. This was going to be a billion-dollar business called Musician's Toolkit. This is a program that would teach teens and elementary school students how to play music. In this particular scheme, how much money do you think he actually raised? Well, we were able to account for approximately $200 million, but that only goes as far back as the business records that we have and been able to verify through, through banks. But we know, for example, that investor who invested back in 1996, we don't know the full scope of where that money went or how many others there were. So our our ballpark figure that we can track and know definitively from records is 200 million, but it's it's more. That's a lot of money. Um, where was the money going? Well, everywhere, but where it was supposed to. <laughs> <laughs> no, let me give you a more precise idea. So these are rough breakdowns, but about 140 million went to Ponzi payments. This is propping up the investment to show that it's profitable when in fact it is not. So this means that your money is going right back out to Francois. The other funds, we have a sizable chunk going to the other businesses that I talked about, the music studio, the video studio, the event business. 
and then the charity. There was also another one specifically that had a a large drain of funds, and that was the racing business. Mr. Rust and his wife, Mrs. Rust, owned about 100 thoroughbred racehorses. Wow. Kinds that competed in the Kentucky Derby or the Breeders' Cup. Wow. Um, That's very interesting. um, Do you think the wife, did she know how the money was being spent or how the money was being raised? Did she have any ideas to know that it was being done horribly or unethically? Well, I can tell you out of all the Rust, Denise Rust, the wife, was the most devout and religious of the group. This is an important factor because Galen Rust did not include her on the investment meetings. He did not include her on what he was telling investors he was doing. But at the same time, he asked her to mail out these different checks, write these different checks, um, deposit this money, balance these accounts. So he asked her to do a portion of the work required to operate the fraud, but left her out of some of the other critical factors. And I think my personal view is that's because he knew she would not go along with that. Um, A good example of this is Denise Rust personally signed checks to a mistress of Galen Rust, totaling over $3 million. And when we asked her about that, she did not know who that person was or why they were being paid other than Galen told her to write the checks to this person that it was part of the investment program. And I think anyone who is a a spouse out there knows that you would never knowingly and willingly write checks to your spouse's affair (laughs) to fund them every month. so that in that sense, no. However, Denise did plead guilty to criminal conduct. And that's because at some point during the scheme, she definitely knew that investor funds were coming in for silver and were not being used to buy silver. Well, were they living a lavish lifestyle together or was Denise not seeing that other side? Did they buy a big house, have expensive cars? What was that? Well, again, an interesting fold to the story. No, they were not living lavishly as one would expect. There was no Ferraris or boats. There were 100 thoroughbred racehorses, though, but not at their home. Their home here in Utah is a log cabin style house. It is a two-story, four-bedroom home, a very normal size house for the area, a very normal looking house. Uh, They drove older vehicles, nothing new or flashy. Uh, They they look very humble, uh, very normal. Um, They they did not certainly project uh, success as we would view it today as a very flashy sense, but very much uh, successful in that they were charitable, they were giving, they had many family businesses, they had a large family. Those types of values sell more here in Utah than perhaps a Ferrari. That's definitely different from what we're used to seeing and watching on documentaries and shows is watching people spend lavishly. So 
that's that's quite a twist in this story that's very relevant. And I don't know anyone that has $30 million, but I can imagine a $30 million mistress would be very humble. Did she did she understand like how the money was uh, being made? Did she understand the business? No. In fact, the mistress did not know Galen Russ's real name. Oh. She knew him under an alias. And she was one of about 19 other mistresses. Some of them did know each other, but many did not. So you mean to tell me this guy had 19 mistresses, 500 clients. He's definitely a people person, right? Absolutely. That is his forte. Talking, explaining, meeting, very personable. That's... Did the mistresses know about each other? Some of them did. Uh, Some of them did. Wow. So this guy has been doing this since 1996. I can only imagine the shock or the reaction when he found out that he was being investigated. Can you tell us a little bit about that time and what happened? Well, I would say the opposite of he knew it was coming. At some point, although our investigation was entirely covert, um, he did not know he was under investigation for several months before we froze all of his assets. But the day-to-day operations of that that Ponzi scheme, he knew one day this this day of reckoning was coming. Being the people person that he is, I'm sorry, being the people person that he is, did he try to talk his way out of it? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Uh, that day in November, he sat down face to face with me, just as he has done with at least 500 other victims and lied straight to my face. He told me all of the same predicate statements about there's silver. It's at Brinks. We have everything secured. Uh, this, there's nothing to see here. Uh, my, I pay out returns on regular basis. There's nothing going on here. And when we let him know, no, sir, we've been to Brinks and we know you don't have an account there and nothing is there. He did eventually come clean and he did explain himself about what he was doing and lying to to people. Did the victims, did they cooperate? Were they shocked? Oh, many of the victims were extremely shocked, so much so that there was a single instance that I found particularly compelling Uh, when the news story hit of that all this had, had come out, this was a Ponzi scheme. The funds were gone. It didn't exist. One couple who was at the airport on their way to go survey a church mission. uh, The wife had a heart attack in the airport. The, the news that their entire life savings, their home equity, all of their retirement accounts, all of their savings was all wrapped up into rust coin. And that was a fraud. It stopped her heart and she unfortunately passed away. And that story is not unique. There were many. It was very, very devastating for our community and those investors. So you would say probably the majority of these investors didn't diversify their portfolio. They had all their eggs in one basket, and that was with this fraudster. Yes. Not only all their eggs, but there was multiple generations who had invested. So the grandparents, the parents, the children's college fund, 
three or more generations have all of their financial security wrapped up into this scheme. You know, as securities regulators, we hear about these stories all the time. And when we speak to the public, one thing we say is financial crimes can and do kill. And that is through depression, suicide, shock. It really has an effect on people. So um, this is a very clear example of that. Did he show any remorse? Ultimately, at sentencing, Galen Rust cried and said he was sorry. But for those of us who work in this arena and deal with people and offenders like Galen Rust, we know those are not real tears. Because a a true person who has the same level of empathy and understanding that many of us have, offenders like this don't have. Because they would not be able to sit across from a dying widow and ask her to put all of her life savings into his Ponzi scheme. You you can't uh, lie to people's faces, 500 plus people's faces every day uh, without feeling some level of, of real remorse. And I can tell you, Galen Russ does not feel real remorse. He's remorseful that he was caught. He's remorseful that he is not important anymore, that people aren't coming to him, that he is not getting the the personal interaction that he craved so much from 500 plus people and 19 different mistresses and five different children. He's not getting the personal attention that he wants and craves. That's what's remorseful for him, not the lives that he impacted or the people he hurt. So what was the outcome of the trial? Well, shockingly, uh, this case did not go to trial. Wow. Galen Rust accepted a plea offer in which he agreed to go to prison for 19 years. So is he currently in prison as we speak? He is. He is in a federal facility in Mississippi. Wow. Were any assets collected? Were the horses sold? Is there any money to give back? Yes. Uh, Starting the day we initiated that asset freeze, all of those assets were put under federal receivership. And that receivership is still alive and going well today. They have collected approximately 30 million with another 16 million hopeful in the next few uh, months here. So overall, their projected hope is that they get back about $50 million which is a shocking sum to collect from the sale of all of these racehorses and businesses and assets, um, liquidating all kinds of things, um, and also clawing back restitution from earlier investors. So those folks I talked about early on in a Ponzi scheme, the ones who made it out okay, the day this news story came out, they probably said, oh, that's terrible. But at least we got all of our money back and made some extra millions. Mm-hmm. All of that money comes back. So the receiver files well over 100 lawsuits against earlier investors in the scheme to claw back their ill-gotten gains, those returns that are not actually returns. They're someone else's money. How did the community act? towards his conviction? Well, Denise Rust was the first defendant to be sentenced 
because she was the first to take responsibility and and take a guilty plea. And most of the investors were really fired up, really engaged at that point, just because it was more recent. By the time Galen Rust was sentenced during the height of the pandemic, not many of this investors showed up to his sentencing because you couldn't. It was virtual. So not many investors got to speak. And not many investors were were there to stand up and share their story. But many submitted written statements. But I can tell you the written statement just doesn't have the same impact as someone uh, telling their story and, and giving their, their thoughts in person. Um, overall, people were devastated. They are still devastated. They're hopeful that they'll get some money back from this receivership. It has yet to pay out. But I think our... First payout is scheduled to happen sometime this year. So my hope is that some portion of the money going back to investors will help them just recover what's happened. But the outcome is many investors have gone back to work. People who retired are now back at work. Um, people who who mortgaged or leveraged their house to invest in this had to move in with family members. I can think of one family who now has multiple generations all living in the same house. Uh, Their grandparents, their parents, and the children who were supposed to go to college had to put off college so they could help uh, their parents and their grandparents buy groceries. Wow. We know that it's extremely difficult to try to get money back that was part of a scheme. What are some of the big red flags that you feel audience, the audience should know about? That's a great question. So in this case, if these investors, it's always hindsight, right? So we certainly don't blame them. But if someone had asked, are you licensed? What's the licensure requirements for something like this? And even if Galen Rust had said, oh, you don't need a license. You don't need one. Does that make sense to you? That the an $80 million investment program or opportunity would not require some kind of license, some kind of insurance, some kind of regulatory overview. Those things just don't line up. The other is trying to separate risk and reward. We as regulators and securities know these things go hand in hand. They are salt and pepper. They are peanut butter and jelly. You cannot separate risk and reward. So in this case, if I, Galen Rust is sitting down with a prospective investor and telling them, this is a sure thing. We've got collateralized silver in a vault. You can't see it, but it's there. And there is a 40% plus return in some years. Okay. That means it's an outrageously high reward and there's no risk. That's those are incongruent. You cannot have it. It doesn't exist. That is a red flag that just merits additional questions. The other I can think of here is investors just relied on their their neighbor, their friend, family, whoever referred them to the investment. They did not go and do their due diligence. And that is just a basic thing. If you're going to give your life savings to someone, let's ask some questions. Let's let's do some searches. Let's Google. 
let's let's ask more than just the person selling you the investment or more than the person referring you the investment go out and get your own your own evidence your own thoughts before giving everything you have um i just try to compare it to something like we would buy like a a vacuum or a car who do you go look at the reviews and see oh is this a good one does it have the features that i want is it the kind that I want. Let me go test drive it. Let me go look, ask around. These are things we do when we purchase something insignificant in our lives. The same should be done when you you invest in a product that is your entire life savings, if not more so. That is some great advice. And I would just like to commend you, Liz, and you, Francois, talking about this complicated case <laughs> and making it very easy to understand but is there anything that we may have left out that you feel like our listeners should know some important aspects that we may have left off about this case that we maybe didn't get a good chance to cover? Oh, well, when it comes to investing, go to your state regulator. Absolutely. Go contact them. We're here. We exist. Uh, we have a job to do, and our job is to protect the public to strengthen the markets, to, to enforce fair regulation, to ensure people are competent who are managing your investment funds. So come to us, ask us, wouldn't it be great if, if one of these many 500 plus investors in Rustcoin came to our division and said, hey, is this guy licensed? How does it work? How would it work? What kind of licenses should he have? Uh, we We would have been able to tell he's not licensed. So right. anything he's offering you, there's no paperwork, there's no licensure. That's not something you want to put your life savings in. That's some excellent, excellent advice. So thank you very much, both of you, for joining us today. Um, and more importantly, thank you for the work that you do to protect the investors. And that's all for today's episode from not really Montgomery, Alabama today, from Fort Lauderdale. I'm Nick Vonderu. And I'm Tina Cotsalis. If you have any questions about today's episode or would like more information about the topics discussed, please email us at realliferegulators at gmail.com. That's realliferegulators, all one word, at gmail.com. If you'd like to hear future episodes, please hit the subscribe button. NASA provides its information as a service to investors. It's neither a legal interpretation nor an indication of a policy position by NASA or any of its members. If you have questions concerning the meaning or application of a particular state or provincial law, rule, or regulation, Please consult an attorney that specializes in securities law.